couple of weeks ago, we looked at Adam and Eve, and then last week we looked at Cain and Abel, and, and this morning we're going to look at Noah, and we're going to see a couple of things, and kind of in a vein of thinking, looking at, at a series of temptations that have occurred in the world. You know, certainly with Adam and Eve, there's a temptation to ignore what God has taught us. In Cain and Abel's situation, we see a temptation to submit to the anger in our life, the, the moments when we want to do what feels good to us in spite of what God has instructed us to. And this morning, as we dive in to chapter 6 in Genesis, we're going to see a picture where the temptation is strong in us to follow the crowd. And you'll note that this is not an easy passage, and none of these passages are typically very easy concerning the matter of, of how we should behave. And I would challenge you that as we look to them, to, that in each and every one of these, notice that God's proximity is close to the people. He is with Adam and Eve in the garden. He leans in to talk with Cain, and he, he will be present in this moment instructing Noah. Uh, that being said, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn with me to chapter 6 in Genesis and beginning at verse number 5. Now, there's a lot that has, that has happened up to this point you know, since we left Cain and Abel, but I will tell you, and there's some peculiar passages and things that, that, that bear lots of scrutiny and study that have happened up till now, but as far as the spiritual focus of, the day, of today, we'll look at verses 5 and following. So if you'll stand when you get to verse number 5 of chapter 6, in honor of God's Word. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5 says this. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. It's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing a floodwater on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is in the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, your wife, excuse me, your daughter, your sons' wives, with you. Man, I'm stumbling through this bed. Pray for Brother Ben this morning. Verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. 
They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind of animals and their kind and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourselves of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded, so he did. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Scripture, and we thank you that you have not left out the hard parts, the parts that would lead us to believe that there is no measure of justness in you, but instead you have included them all so that we might see the measure of your justice in the midst of our wickedness. I pray that, Lord, that we would see the wickedness in the world around us and we, like you, would be grieved by it and that we would seek to be different, that we would choose to follow hard after you, that we would be in the midst of your plan of redemption, in the midst of, of, of a lostness. Lord, we pray that as we look to these scriptures that we would be reminded that there are indeed consequences for doing what we please instead of following you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, they tell you, they warn you when you're in school, be careful reading long pieces or passages like this because it loses the audience's attention. But with all of the sensation and something that I hope you will see that in the course of, of, of my approach to preaching, the way that I feel God has led me is that it's hard to know the context of a passage without reading a little, little bit of Scripture. So sometimes we read a, a larger slice so that we see the whole picture. And I will tell you, I paint with a great big paintbrush, and that means that I want to big sweeping themes and big important points and high points in spirituality. So we see this, so sometimes you have to cover a canvas now, there are other out, others out there that are great at taking a fine brush and painting a small little detail, and they can work in the corner of a canvas for hours, days, weeks, and months, and they can paint the finest detail. And you'll find that both are necessary. But as we read a big sweeping passage of Scripture like this, we understand and we see a, a thing that has emerged. And it's a hard thing for us because, because for all of my life, I have gone to churches and been inside of nurseries and churches and on the wall in the nursery is Noah's Ark. And we celebrate the animals and we do the thing and we forget that this is a moment of God's distinct judgment on mankind. This is a moment of God preserving but also judging. And sometimes we get caught up in the necessity of, of presenting a picture of God that excludes his justice. And so if I were to share with you this morning uh, just a, a, an idea or a thought that you should hold in your heart, and that is, is that God is just, but he's not so just that he's not merciful. And God is merciful, but he's not so merciful that he's not just. He's both. And it's balanced out in such a way that when we see Scripture, we see it sometimes, and when it leads with justice, when it leads with moral judgment, we oftentimes become very uncomfortable because God is love, right? But it's love that looks at a child and says, no, you cannot eat all of the sugary sweets. You have to put some vegetables into that diet. You know, it's love that looks at, at, at someone that would say to their, to their kid, go outside for a few hours today. Find some sunlight. And as my daughter likes to say, touch some grass. You know, some of y'all need to touch some grass. You haven't been outside so long because that cell phone is right here. You wonder why your neck hurts. I can tell you why your neck hurts. Everybody's like, man, my neck hurts. 
Well, put the phone down for a couple hours. Look at people. We see this, this picture of Scripture here. And we start to see something unfold. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know about you, but it's hard to turn on the news and look at the newspaper and to listen to what's happening in the world around us and wonder if we're not right here. When you look at that we have to be you know, utterly and, and, and supremely concerned with the safety and well-being. I, I, I was with a friend yesterday for a short period of time, and I pulled off to go to a random gas station, and he's like, Where, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just going to the gas station. And he's like, here? And I was like, there is no place in Tulsa that scares me. And he was kind of like, are you sure? I said, you think this is a bad neighborhood? And he's like, well, we're getting pretty close. And I'm like, I, I didn't know there was an unsafe quick trip in all of Tulsa. But, but this is the picture where, when even your friends are like, this part of town, we might not stop in this part of town. You know, and I recognize, you know, having grown up in and around the area that there are some rough parts of town. I mean, I, not, I don't neglect that. But for some reason whatsoever, and my wife tells me that I have a size advantage, it's kind of like carrying home field advantage with you that when you go to a place, you don't have to be scared of knocking on somebody's door and inviting them to church because you're typically as big or bigger than most of the people that are going to answer the door. Right? I guess maybe that carries over into that I'm not really worried about stopping at a random gas station along a major highway in Tulsa. But there's wickedness in our world. And we have to be supremely concerned about locking our stuff up and making sure that, that we have, I mean, from the physical all the way to the cyber side of things, man, where we got to create a bazillion different passwords. How many of you love having to come up with a password with characters and alphabet that is uppercase and lowercase, and you need to make sure that you have a number in there, and, and you also probably need to learn a second language so that you can read that thing when it's done? Security has become this chief concern, and why is security such a big deal to us? Physical and digital, because we are concerned about the wickedness of man all around us, all the time. People that would steal from us, people that would take from us, people that would hurt us or harm us, or people that would nefariously come in and, and for their own selfish reasons, gain their life from our excess. And we wonder when we read this passage, how far off are we from what it was like in this day? Because the Lord, man, can you imagine being a creator that the first family you created, dad and mom disobey you. The, the sons, one of them kills the other one. And now we're just a few chapters later and it's like, and by the way, the rest of mankind, all of their descendants are also bad news. But then you look at your own heart and you consider your own life and you realize that that wickedness lives in me and you just like it lives in them. This was point number one, if you're following along and keeping notes this morning, is God knows the intent of our hearts. He knows them. I like what Vody Bauckham said about this, and he says that, you know, how is it possible that a loving God 
could know the way that I think and the way that I, the way that I, I feel in my heart towards fellow men and, and the world around me and not have killed me in my sleep last night because he knows how bad I am. And I was like, man, Bodhi, just striking at my heart with that piece. Because you know how you feel, don't you? When you're driving down the road and the traffic is kind of intense and somebody gets in front of you and you're like, and you're like, they feel that wickedness rising up inside of you. Or when somebody's mean, when you're waiting in line for something, or the server's not very, very, very on point, and you're just like, all the time, you're like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go talk to the manager. And all this is because you cry out for this justice in you. But ultimately, it's because we're selfish. And we want to be filled up right here first. And the wickedness of man is running over the face of the earth. And God, he knows the heart of you. He knows it. If you don't feel guilty and some bit of shame and some bit of conviction sometimes for the awful things you thought in your head that you didn't say out loud. And trust me, there's coming a day, and, and I, I measure this out for you very carefully. Most of us have a pretty good filter, and we know what we're supposed to say as Christians, but we also know what we're thinking, and we know that they're not the same two things. You got quiet. Because you know what you're thinking, and you know what you're saying, and you know they're not the same thing, right? God knows the intention of our hearts, right? We have a pretty good filter, but you know what I have learned? If you live long enough, your filter will break. And then you'll just start saying all the things. Anybody in here ever have a grandparent or a senior adult in your life that just all of a sudden just starts hip firing and you're like, where did that come from? The filter breaks. Let me prepare you. Discipline your mind as much as you do your outward expressions because your filter will one day break. And people will then begin to learn who you really are inside. Things that are not in your character to say out loud, but your heart is bubbling over with them. Be careful with that stuff. We should feel as guilty as the things we say wrongly aloud as the ones we say in our head, in our hearts. And if that's the case, then we all should feel pretty bad because I guarantee that I'm not alone in this at times. Verse number six presents a little bit of trouble for us because we see an emotion in God that we're not, we're not used to seeing. It says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And we see this picture of the Almighty. And I'm convinced that Scripture makes no mistakes, that it is perfect. And as a result, sometimes I believe we are given these things so that we are reminded that there is a right and proper emotion that comes into our life at the right time. And it should be utilized in a way that glorifies God. Because God is glorified in the, in the very sensation of knowing that the thing he has made is turned. I always say that mankind wants to be just like God, and God is a creator. So mankind wants to be a creator as well. But our problem is, is that because of sin and wickedness, we pervert everything we create. We have, we have every right to expect that when we think of the creator, that when he looks down upon us, that there should be some bit of, of disappointment. And that's a hard picture for us. We don't like that picture. Because for most of us that struggle with a little bit of insecurity, and let me give you a hint. All of you struggle with some insecurity somewhere. It is the single common denominator of everybody in this room that you have some insecurity. So much so that I'd have you look at your neighbor and say, you seem insecure to me. <laughs> some of you have been looking forward to saying that your whole lives to one of your 
friends or relatives. But when those things start to trickle in, we begin to realize this, this measure of insecurity that wells up in us. We begin to see that oftentimes it drives us to do unthinkable things. And God's emotion that he has he sees this brokenness in us. And it bothers him. It should bother him. Like I said, we have trouble with this verse. Why? Because God doesn't make mistakes, does he? He makes us and we make mistakes. And that's the truth. We see the picture continue to unfold. God, as a result, demonstrates his justness. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. What a place to be. Sometimes I look up to the heavens and I cry out to God just the same way the prophets do later in the scriptures, not that I'm a prophet or not that I'm on the same page as them, but, but you know, Lord, have, have mercy on us, a sinful nation, for we are a people of unclean lips. We are a people of wickedness. We are a people. A world that is overrun where and any electronic device that could connect to the internet could immediately have access to things like pornography. That's wickedness. Where we could, we could destroy our lives in, in a couple of keystrokes with a device that each and every person feels entitled to have so much so that we browbeat our parents from the moment we can ask for one. Th this one picture... This one thing, and I know I'm touching on a, a sensitive issue, and it doesn't plague everybody, but it does plague many. The statistics tell, statistics tell us that it's, it's rampant in our world. The, the hard part for us is that when we look to the, to the world around us, that we, we should expect that when we think of God, that when we are in our lowest state, that there should be some, some bit of sorrow we have created in God, that we have done this wicked thing. That's hard, isn't it? It's not inconsistent with the scripture that teaches us that he loves us and wants to redeem us. But there's a need for redemption that is born to us when we begin to realize scriptures like this because we begin to see who we really are and what the world around us is like. But, but verse number eight gives us some, some bit of hope. There's a measure in verse number eight which says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I, I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. You get this picture of the whole world is wicked, but there's one man. And, and this one man that finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and we see point number two, if you're following along, is grace can always be found. Look at your neighbor and say, grace can always be found. If, if you don't believe me, then you haven't read this book. God can be disappointed with creation. He can be sorrowful and remorseful that he has created mankind. And, and look at this picture of he made us and then we made mistakes. And then we get to this point where, but there's this grace that exists. And it always works its way into the story. Always. And I'm excited about that always. Because there's a moment where Noah begins to show us just a little bit of what it looked like. You realize the whole world was wicked and was in deep distress and in bad spot, and then one man came and he sorted it all out through grace. 
His name is Jesus. Noah's not a perfect man, but neither are you. Noah will falter later in the chapters if you follow the story, but you'll see a picture here. You'll see a picture. You'll see a, a moment where one man is God's instrument. And that grows out to his family, and that grows out to a plan. You know, I, I was, in preparation for this, I was thinking about, you know, the picture of mankind being wicked. And I didn't have time this morning to unfold all the passages for you, and certainly could, could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on it, and we could talk about every part of it. But, you know, one of the pictures that occurs later is that God does indeed, after the ark is filled, and after the boat is, you know, completely, completely stocked and ready to go, and the door is shut, that the rain begins to fall, and there are people that are outside of the boat, and they want on. And I think of all the wickedness in the world. And you know, one of the things that, that is a prevailing thought for us is that the majority seems to have the say, don't they? If the majority tells you that it's right, then it must be right. Well, I'm going to give you a little civics lesson that's broken. I'll give you a little civics lesson. You don't live in a democracy because we don't believe that. You live in a republic. Just go back and into your head, just do the Pledge of Allegiance. The republic that you live in. We have a democratic process by which we vote on things and all kinds of stuff like this. But I'm going to tell you there's something broken about that. What that means is that if enough people on one side decide to do the wrong thing together, that they can run the show. That's broken, guys. And that's what was happening here. The majority in the crowd was out there saying that, that the sin in the world was important and it was good and it was pop culture. And you know what most people say in my preparation for this, the thought that kept occurring to me is, most of the time when you're in a situation where there's a problem, what do we say? Don't create any waves. Don't bring it up. Yes, we don't agree with this. Yes, we disagree. No, we're not going to make a big deal about this. Don't make any waves. And I thought to myself, I bet you those people standing outside of the boat sure made a lot of waves as they splashed around in the water and waited for it to come up over their heads as they slapped their hands up against the side of the boat asking for salvation it wasn't available to them. When is the right time to make waves? What's not after the water is up around your neck? It's right now. We don't have to agree because the Scripture doesn't have to agree with what the popular thing is. I, I long for a day when certain immoral things that have become popular and in vogue go out of popularity. All of this stuff that, that deals with whether or not you have the plumbing that God gave you or didn't is a measure of popularity, and it's going to be grossly our condemnation. I guarantee it. It's hard for us. Man, it's hard in this world that we live in. Why? Because we want people to know that we love them. But God speaks against this. And Noah is the only one who's found any grace in God's eyes. And yet there's this plan that emerges. Verse number 9, we get the genealogy of Noah. Verse number 11, we go back to God pointing out. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Not only was the behavior of mankind curtailed and, and, and wrong, but it says that all of flesh was this way. And God is, is, is content to sort it out. Verse number 13. And God said to Noah, 
The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is the picture. This is the picture that the New Testament also proclaims about those who don't have Christ. That their wickedness comes up before God and he has to judge them for it. But we neglect this part, right? One man approached his pastor and said, Pastor, you know, things are going pretty good at the church and everything seems to be growing and, and man, the bottom line is good. And, and man, but you know, there's one thing that's a problem. And he's like, well, what is that, sir? And he says, do you have to preach on sin so much? And he's like, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, that sin stuff, you should dial that back just a little bit. And the pastor thought, well, let me think on this for a little while. And as he thought on it, he, he, he thought about a bottle of strychnine. And on strychnine, I, I mean, I, don't, I know it's a controlled substance, and you probably don't have any because it's dangerous. But you, you realize that there's a label it says strychnine, and then underneath it, it says poison. And the pastor went back to the man, and he says this. He says, me not talking about sin is like taking the warning off of every bit of poison that's out there. I think one day people will look up from the judgment that God will dole out to mankind, and what they will say is, I wish somebody had warned us. I wish somebody had presented to us the warning label that comes along with sin. And you know there's a warning label on many of the bad substances that exist in the world that will tell you that they will cause cancer and that they will shorten your life and they could destroy brain cells and that all these different things that you could do. There's a laundry list, and you know what we do? We step over those things. Why do we step over those things? Because we're selfish. Because what we want measures out to more than what God wants. And as a result, there's this picture of judgment that's in front of us. But aren't you excited that in verse 14, when he says he will destroy the whole earth, he begins to give Noah a plan. Number three in your bulletin, if you're keeping notes, God has a plan in the midst of man's disobedience. And he says in verse number 14, make yourselves an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out, side with pitch. Now, I, I will tell you that as I had a little bit of a, a period of my life where I worked with a roofing company, and we only worked with pitch one time that I'm aware of. Don't get that stuff on you. It is waterproof, but you have to live it off or cut it off. You get some of that on you, and you have to carve it off of you, or you have to wear it off. There is no, there is, it is on you. And he tells them, build this great big vessel, and he says, bring all these animals on, and we could dissect all of that, but that's not the spiritual high point of this, point, of this whole purpose here this morning. We look at the picture, and the picture is, gather up what's necessary so that I can redeem mankind through your family. God's plan is not to destroy all of man. God's plan is to redeem them through a family, through a individual and his family. And this seems harsh, doesn't it? This seems overwhelming. Well, it gets through all of the instruction of what we should be doing to preserve the, the, all these, these, these creatures, flying birds and crawling and creeping animals. And there's so much that could be talked about here. And if you hadn't ever considered it, you know, one thing for you to think about is, is that oftentimes people say, well, how did you fit all those animals on the boat? And one, one astute 
you know, man said this, and I'll say it, and then I'll give you a little bit of help. Okay? He probably didn't take full-grown animals. He probably took babies. That makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? I don't know if that's real or not, but I'm like, that makes a lot more sense to me. Why? Because then the big cats don't want to eat the other animals, right? The other big animals don't want to fight back. And puppies sure are a lot easier to, to like, a lot harder to keep up with, but a lot easier to like, right? I will say this, and there's something that you need to know when you study this book. This is not a scientific blueprint. This is a spiritual account of the accounts that God has made. So oftentimes one of the things that we struggle with is we want to go back and we want to try to map it out perfectly. And one of the things that I, I remind you is, is that, yes, the details are there, but not all the details are there. It's not a schematic, right? Sometimes when you open up a Bible story and you read it, it's the picture on the box. It's not the instruction manual of how God did all the specific pieces. So, so saying this is say you go back and you look at creation. Side note, complete side note. People struggle with the fact that in Genesis chapter 1 and then through the next couple chapters, it seems like there are two separate creation accounts. That's not the point at all. The point is, is that in the first telling of the creation account, the high point is, is that God made it all. And the second point is that God made man, man in the midst of it and that he's telling two specific spiritual points to us. That's why we get that little bit of confusion is because we read it like we're trying to put it on a graph or a bar makes it very hard for us to read the Bible, by the way. If you were raised in Western culture like most of us are in this room, you want to put a name and a date on a line. The Bible tells high point to high point to high point. They don't categorize things by date so much as they do by importance of event. We get to this important event and we see something, and that is that we should all be reminded that God has a plan in the midst of our disobedience. He always has. We see it. We see it unfold. We get to the end of the chapter, and I know I read all of this and stumbled through it earlier. I will, I will save you that, that, that treasury again. But we get to verse, verse number 22. Right at the very end, it says, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him to do. So he did. And you want to know where the bit of hope is in this message. It's right here. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Are you having a hard time in the world around you? Are you doing what God's word tells you to do? I find that those two things run just dramatically against each other. Hard times and obedience to God. If I have hard times and I do obedience to God, I'm at much more peace than when I have hard times and I'm not being obedient to God. When I have a hard thing that pops up in my life and I think, man, this is a good day to rebel, and you've been there, haven't you, when you start off and the day turns sideways and you feel grumpy and you're grouchy and you just want to roar at everything that comes your way and you feel pretty good to be angry, right? Did it make your day better? Now you should run in the same vein of God's word. You should run right alongside of it. Why? Because following God's plan is our only hope. That's point number four, if you're keeping notes. There's a story that exists in the world. And, you know, I haven't done enough research to know how accurate it is. But I was inspired by it enough to share it with you this morning. And I thought, man, 
you know, there's this guy, and I, you know, names in the Bible are sometimes just as hard as names in history, but Telemachus was a guy who, a simple farmer that was a Christian who was working his field one day and, and felt God lean in and instruct him to go to Rome, and so he does. He goes into Rome, and he is exploring the city, but he comes to the Colosseum, and he sees the, that they're going to have a great big gathering that day, and there are gladiators that are out front of the Colosseum, and those gladiators are, are saluting and the, the, the typical expression that you may have heard, we who are about to die salute you. And he realized that these gladiators were going in to do battle. And, and this, this phrase popped up in him. In the name of Christ, stop. He, he shouts it above the crowd trying to get these gladiators to hear him say this. And they do not. They, they march inside. He works his way into the, to the inner workings of all this. He gets to the edge of the crowd, finds his way onto the Colosseum floor and runs out to them. And the audience thinks it's a joke. They think it's part of the show. They have gathered for the purpose of watching men kill other men. And he's screaming out, in the name of Christ, stop this. And as he approaches one of the gladiators, he gets close enough to him, the gladiator takes his sword out and runs him through and kills him right there. And as the man begins to crumple and go to the ground, one last time he cries this out before he dies, in the name of Christ, stop. And at the very top of the Colosseum, there's a, a roar in the crowd, kind of a murmuring. And a man gets up, and he walks out. And then others begin to follow him. And they begin to see the necessity of, this is, this is broken, this is wrong. And the Colosseum is emptied, and they say that it's the last day that there were ever gladiators fighting in the Colosseum. And, you know, whether that's historically accurate or not, I challenge you to go and look at it and say, Brother Ben, that was, that was perfectly right. But the illustration stands. Sometimes one voice in the midst of a wicked world can cry out and sacrifice and give everything they have for the purpose of doing what? Being courageous and not following the crowd. The crowd right now will tell you so many things that are counter to the Scriptures are true that they're right, that they're good, that we should embrace them, that we should ignore this, that this is an ancient and old book. But I will tell you, I've never read any book anywhere else that's ever given me any hope, that's never given me any plan of grace in the midst of the chaos, that has never shown me that God is working in spite of our wickedness. I've never read any other book that does it this way. And all the other world religions that I've studied, everybody has to do something for God. But in this book... God does something for us. And just like Noah, one man in the midst finding grace, in our lifetime, we have realized that the New Testament champions the purpose of Christ. Knowing that he came into the world as a single person, having all of this grace and all of this mercy, but all of this justice tied up into him. And what does he offer you? He offers you a way to be a Noah in a world of people that are drowning in sin. He offers you how to be the, the one person that might be very different than the rest of the world around you. You see, one of the, the greatest things that I think threatens us today is that we're all trying to express our individuality by being just like everyone else. And one of the greatest crimes that will ever be committed against humankind is that we'll believe that the things that we have been lied about are true. And then we'll realize that we have done against the scriptures numerous times and it's so far gone that our only hope is to cry out and pound against the side of the vessel 
and finally make some waves for the very first time. Save us. Save us. But aren't you excited that the Scripture teaches us that the hope of Christ is real and that he offers it to us? And you could be at that very moment, neck deep in the water, knowing that there's nothing left to stand on, swimming with your last bit of life, climbing up the side of the boat if possible, but it's not. And the thing that you could do is you could cry out to Jesus and he could save you. You might be here today and you might be saying, my life is drowning and I've been following the world and and I don't know what else to do and I stumbled in here for whatever reason, but I need to be saved. Well, Jesus offers it freely. You know, we we talked about it in Sunday school and it's a verse that, that echoes throughout eternity that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, when you were sinful, that's when he decided to, to demonstrate his love and die for you. That's hope. In the name of Christ, stop. The world around us, however many of them there are, they could all be wrong. One final story, and I'll bring this to an invitation. I'm at South Padre Island with some friends of mine. Um, I'm leading the team, and, and I'm sitting there in the midst of a worship service, and, and we had been in the middle of a ruckus mob that day. It was wild. There's a great big sand sculpture that was erected by a guy that was part of our group, somebody that the, that the team has brought in to do this. And in the middle of the sculpture is a picture of Jesus. And I think that, that day, I think that the expression under, under the heart was open up. And party goers on South Padre Island during spring break are, are just, they're wild. And they're just, they're, the debauchery is everywhere. Scantily clad, drowning themselves in alcohol, pursuing inappropriate relationships, trying to forget their, their whole world. And we're there, and we're just out there just talking about Jesus. And we are just sharing the gospel with people. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And I don't know why my team just happened to be the team that was close there that day. But everything began to turn. Somebody had climbed up the face of that statue. And the crowd freaked out. They became so energized and angry at this person for destroying the sculpture, a picture of Jesus, that they began to yell and cast jeers upon this man. And then all of a sudden, you see it out of the distance, a can of alcohol, and then another, and then another. And before you know it, it looked like a scene from a, a, from a, a battlefield full cans of beer being hurled at this guy to the point where he's taking body shots and blows and he's, he's crumpling and falling to the bottom and he comes down off the mound and then the crowd converges on him. And it's this picture and you're like, what is happening? And they are beating him to a pulp. And some of our team members are mortified and some of the young girls are trying to get in there to drag people off and, and trying to get help to him and other people are trying to do the same thing, trying to drag him out of there. And later, we're sitting in the hotel room trying to sort out what had happened because he finally, he's finally rescued by some law enforcement officers. And they say to me, they say, why in the world did that happen today? And I'd say, because at the end of the day, no matter how bad we are, we identify with Jesus to some extent to save us. And if you take that away, you cut off our hope, all of it, What do we have? Noah's story 
is a story of hope in the midst of the chaos, the, the sinfulness, the craziness. The scripture tells us they mocked him. You need to be different in this world and not try to fit in because you follow this, because you know who Jesus is. Do you know Jesus today? This one man who could change your life? I would encourage you today to step out, but you also might be in this world, in, in this room, being a part of this world saying, I too have thought that the world around me had a right to have a, a majority say. But it's wrong. The scripture teaches it's wrong. You see, whether all of us follow God or none of us follow God, God still wins in the end. That's the truth. That's the truth. We're going to stand today. Would you stand with me and bow your heads? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let us pray together. Lord, we ask that during this time, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Lord, first and foremost, to know you as the life giver, the hope bringer, the, the one who gives us a plan in the midst of the chaos. We need you more than ever, right here, right now. Lord, I pray that we would stop dismissing the warning label that the scripture so prominently warns us about the sin in the world around us. That we might be believers who follow after you that look around the world and say, in the name of Christ, stop this. But we also might be people in this place that might need you for the very first time. I pray that anyone here would have the courage to just come and just plead with you to save them, to bring them up out of their waters. Lord, because each and every one of us needs you. Because the temptation is great that we could just follow the crowd. I pray, Lord, that we in this place, that we would decide to be, that we would pray to be, that we would seek after being a Noah in the world a world that is chaotic and out of control. Lord, I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.